say that what we've covered and will cover in this course is only, in my view, a smattering of the flaws in the theory of evolution. In my view, there are, you could go on for several months, really, with respect to the flaws in the theory of evolution. And don't feel that a course of a few lessons here by any means exhausts the flaws in the theory of evolution. This statement we put up on the board at the close of last time, and while some of you may have figured out a way and a means to show that this is quite easy to explain, uh, in my view, and I think the view of many people, it isn't nearly so easy. Very difficult to take two mutually exclusive things, which is change and unchange, or to put it in the parlance of biology, persistence and mutation, which are mutually exclusive because the thing either changes or doesn't change. It's difficult to conceive how it does both. And list them under the same hypothesis. Now, unchange or persistence is the observed fact because over 70%, say, of the mollusks which are now living have been found as fossils in what geologists call a Cambrian layer, which would bring it back to 500,000 years ago. No change in them whatsoever. This, at least to quote them, is a fact. There has been no change in these mollusks in a half a billion years. The theory, however, is that things have changed from simple structures into man. Now, it's pretty hard for me to believe that these could both be listed under the same hypothesis. Um, Simpson, keep quoting Simpson because he's, I think, if anybody would be recognized as an authority in evolution, it would be Simpson, says the processes of organic history that's the wrong sheet. Huxley is the one I want to talk about. He is a descendant of Thomas Huxley, one of the world's authorities and prolific writers. Wrote a book called Religion Without Revelation, which is a recommended text in universities. Though natural selection is an ordering principle, it operates blindly. It pushes life onwards from behind and brings about improvements automatically without conscious purpose or any awareness of a name. By the way, here is a, an example of circular reasoning, right in this very quotation from that um, conference in 1959. In this paragraph, you answer, Julian, why do things improve in complexity and push onwards and upwards? His answer is because of natural selection. And you say, well, what is natural selection? And he says, it is a force which pushes things onwards and upwards. Well, this is an awful lot different, in my view, from me saying, what is a car? And you say, it is an automobile. And I say, well, what's an automobile? And you say, well, it's a car. Natural selection is a thing that pushes something onwards and upwards. Well, what pushes it onwards and upwards? Natural selection. This is, an, an, again, an example of proving the theory by the theory. However, that's 
and another monster. Right now, we're talking about change and unchange. And this writer and lecturer says that there is an automatic force which pushes things onward, onwards. And that's how this whole theory of evolution got going and, and man came here. Fine. That's what happened. Then how on earth do you account for the fact of the great persistence of species? Where there's been no change whatever for a half a billion years. Now maybe somebody can figure out how these two things, which are mutually exclusive, can be listed under the same hypothesis. But I'm like Brother Woody Brown. My, my mind just can't conceive of such a thing. So much for change and non-change. Well, not so much. I want to make one other. Um, this theory of evolution can be made to fit almost any set of facts. Change and unchange, persistence and mutation, all explained under the grand umbrella of the theory of evolution. Well, I remember when I was in high school, I, I began to think maybe there was something to the theory of evolution. And it really had me worried because I, I felt, as Thomas actually said, that an acceptance of the theory of evolution nullified belief in the Bible. And I didn't want to nullify belief in the Bible, but I, I didn't want to get off on the wrong track either. So I remember in 1938, I was in the first year of the University of Toronto, and a great announcement was made, and one of the great historic events of the evolutionary deal. And that was that off the coast of Madagascar, a coelacanth had been caught in I don't know how many fathoms of water. And there was a, I remember in the Toronto Daily Star, there was a great big uh, picture of this coelacanth, the man who caught it, and it was labeled as a living fossil. Because they had dug up a coelacanth, which is a funny looking fish, um, in fossil form, uh, which they felt was, I think, about 50 million years old. And now they caught one off the coast of Madagascar, and here was a living fossil. And this was hailed as a tremendous um, store for the theory of evolution. Larry, well, I wasn't too bright, and I'm not, but I thought, how, how is this a score for evolution? I, I just couldn't figure out how, how this thing could be announced as a great victory for evolution. And I still can't. Now maybe some of you are smarter than I am. If you are, I'd like to talk to you after and tell me how this is a score for evolution. When evolution is talking about change, and this thing was cut to demonstrate no change. Now how one theory can demonstrate both is something that my poor brain can't figure out. Alright. Now, Next, uh, a fifth difficulty, and I'm only going to briefly touch on this, of the theory of evolution, is I'll write this down, and you can put this down as number five in the group, the absence of Nascent organs. In flora and fauna today. Remember we're talking about organs. Nascent organs. Now what do we mean by that? 
And that's an organ, is an organ, which another word for it, I guess, is incipient. But to use layman's language, it would be an organ coming in to existence. This is what we're talking about. An organ coming in to existence. Now, if the theory of evolution be true, we should be able to go to the thousands of species which are now available and find hundreds and hundreds of cases of nascent organs. That is, organs coming in to existence. You can uh, go out in nature and find um, cells. Here's what I'm looking for. From protozoa, which are single-cell animals, bryozoa, all the way up the whole business to man, or vertebrates. You can get examples. In other words, you can, in effect, in a sense, get evolution in a moment of time by, by starting at one-cell animals, which we have, and going up to man. So, in a, in a sense, you can go out and grab a hold of evolution, as they describe it, in a moment of time. Fine. Evolution says that from a simple, single cell, the thing climbed up the ladder to man, which I think most of you would agree is a fairly complex critter. Fine. All we want to know is to show us an example of some incipient organs. Organs coming into existence. Halfway up. Three quarters of the way up. 90% of the way up. Whatever you want, but at least some organs which are incipient, which are coming into existence. Now, usually, when you start to talk to an evolutionist about this, he starts immediately talking about vestigial organs. We'll put that down. Now, vestigial organs aren't, my friends, what evolution requires. They are organs going out of existence. They're on the way down. We are interested because vestigial organs are quite consistent with the theory of special creation. If you lay in bed for a month, you're, you're weak. You know, your organs of muscles don't function very well. And if you don't use any of your organs for a while, uh, they start going up. Now, in, when Darwin was flourishing, of course, they thought there was about 94 organs in the human body which were vestigial. How many do they think there are now? Usually, most biologists, how many do they think are vestigial now in the human body? Well, it's zero. They think, you know, all these ones, one by one, they found out they had a function as time went on. And now, I don't think any uh, biologist is claiming definitely that there is an organ of the human body which is vestigial, which is quite a change over a hundred year period. However, there's, we aren't interested, in, or we, and, and when we're talking about this thing and finding vestigial organs, because they are consistent with the theory of special creation, but we are very interested in finding some incipient or nascent or organs coming into existence. Now, in the year 1938, the evolution protest movement of Great Britain issued a formal request of the Rationalist Press Association in Great Britain if they would be willing to publicly name one 
medicine, organ, in the whole gamut of flora and fauna uh, life on this planet. Not a dozen, not six thousand, one Nassim's organ. And so far, the Rationalist Press Association has remained silent on that question. I don't know whether you think this is damaging to the theory of evolution or not, but I think it's frightfully damaging, if not fatal. The fact that the Rationalist Press Association of Great Britain have refused to come out in print and name one single, solitary, Nassim's organ, which they are prepared to defend, uh, in support of the theory of evolution. Now, I want to come now to the sixth one, and this is all we're going to have time for, of this group. And this one is
and they began to ask why it was that they could go dashing down a room and dodge all these poles and each other and not hit them. Oh, a lot of people have wondered that over the years, but it wasn't until the development of radar during the World War II that it became known exactly how it was that the bat could do this. But it was found out that in the bat there was a built-in echo return or echo location system that operates uh, with sound something the way that radar does with light. It was found that the bat has a special organ right above the lip, a very precise organ, which emits sound at ultra-high frequency, much above the frequency which the human ear can pick up. In other words, it has a special emitting system just above the lip that no other creature seems to have. The bat then, as it's flying at tremendous speeds, emits this, this um, high-frequency sound. The sound bounces off the pole and is returned to the bat. The bat then receives the sound in its ears. The sound is immediately conveyed to the brain, which then is a computer, highly specialized computer, because it has to compute in split-second timing the distance and location of the pole and turn to, to avoid it as it goes along. So it has to find the direction of the pole, number one, with the sound emission system. It has to find out how close the pole is by the computer in its brain. And it is even also able not only to, to do that, which is fairly complex, I think you will agree, but if they release flies or bugs in the room, the bats can also about signals out a flying insect. Avoid the pole and also uh, attack a flying insect by the same system. Because remember, it can't see it. It's only got to do this by this echo return system. All this, the insect and the bat, flying at high speeds and able to do this rather remarkable feat. was also found that they could release tremendous cacophony of noises in this chamber during this experiment. And in, and in spite of this, these noises which were released in the chamber, the bats were still able to pick up its own echo return. In other words, although there were many bats in the room, the frequency was such, just like the, everybody in this room has a different um, thumbprint, fingerprint, so the frequency of each bat is sufficiently different that the bat is able to pick up its own echo return system or echo return even though other echo returns are going on at the same time in the room. So that each bat, in spite of other echo returns buzzing around the room and in spite of a cacophony of noises, is able to pick up its own echo return compute the distance, the direction, and the flight of, of, of a bug thing, and capture it, and so get its food. 
just think about this thing for a minute. In the, in, with respect to the theory of evolution, I think most people would agree that George Gaylord Simpson of Harvard is as good a spokesman as anybody with respect to the theory. And this was from Simpson writing in 1959. I don't know whether he changed his view from that time to now or not. I don't think he has. But in 1959, Simpson at this conference in Chicago said, the processes of organic history usually act exceedingly slowly. It is more the rule than the exception for a really appreciable change in a given lineage to take a million years or more. Now this isn't fair, this is Simpson saying that an appreciable change in an organ takes a million years or more. Now other guys don't think Simpson is right. They say that organs don't change like that at all, but they take big jumps like this. Well, there's several things wrong with the jump theory, but if you jump high enough, you're virtually talking about special creation. If you jump from a mouse with no wings to a bat with wings in one jump, or even half that distance, or even a quarter, or even 10%, you're virtually talking about special creation. Mutations this jump just don't jump forward, they jump sideways. And so, Simpson here, at least, adopts the, um, the gradual theory over a million years or more, even. All right? Now, in view of that, let's just think about what really happened according to the theory of evolution and see if it squares with common sense. See if it squares with your own idea of what could happen. I don't know how complicated a computer is, or I guess most of you have seen either one or pictures of one, but it's a fairly complicated mechanism. It's got to be all programmed out to get the right answer. Well, here in the brain of the bat is a computer probably about the size of a, a quarter of a pea or something like this, which is, I think you'll agree, a rather remarkable instrument. But that is by no means all the problem that the evolutionist has. If you take a graph, and you might write this down if you're making notes on this, and set off usefulness from zero to 100% useful on the base of the graph. Remember that if the thing isn't 100% useful, a television set that is 90% useful, or is, you know, is, is all there except the condenser is broken or something, doesn't work too well. It doesn't work at all. It's either got to work or it doesn't work. But if you set out usefulness on the one hand, against complexity, well, you can read my writing, of structure on the other. Now, let's take the bat, evolutionists are not all agreed, but most of them say that the bat must have come from some mammal, something like a mouse. A mouse is a mammal with no wings, and a bat 
is a mammal, or looks something like a mouse, with very specialized and highly developed wings. So evolutionists believe that in the dim distant past, these wings must, and the system must have come from an animal, something like a mouse. A mouse has no echo return system. So the graph of usefulness set off against complexity of structure must be a line like that. It must start out with being of no use at all and, and, and of no complexity because the plain thing isn't there. At one time, there was no echo return system in the mammal. Zero. So the complexity of that structure is zero and the usefulness of it is zero. So the line must go up because eventually you come up here to where the thing is 100% useful as these experiments show and therefore you must have a tremendous complexity of structure. So this line must go up and it must go up gradually. According to Simpson, it takes one million years for, what does he say again? A really appreciable change. That's not the whole thing. It takes a million years for an appreciable change to take place on this line. So I don't know how many million years it's supposed to take for it to go up to 100%. But this is the way this thing must, of necessity, work. As the thing becomes more useful, up to 100% utility, it must, of necessity, have complexity of structure as well. There's got to be some driving force in this thing which drives it up of structure complexity as time goes on to make it more useful. All right, now keep that under your hat for a minute and let's just see now what, what goes on. As things increase in complexity, or if you want them to increase in complexity, don't forget a radar system is what we're talking about in effect. You can't just make additions as you go along. In other words, as this line goes up, you can't say, well, for instance, if you want to make a, a, a computer work better, you can't say, well, we have a beautiful computer here, it costs $7 million to make, but let's add a couple of wires, let's throw in a condenser, let's throw in a couple more circuits, and see if it'll work better. Maybe we can get it to be more efficient. You just can't do that. In order to throw in a couple more circuits and toss in a couple more condensers and do some rewiring and so on, you've got to have the whole thing engineered absolutely perfectly or the thing won't work at all. You'll have answers coming out which are incorrect. So you just can't keep adding, just in common sense, just little appendages here and there. You know, you toss in a, a couple of new cells into this uh, computer and into this radar system, you toss in a couple of new little blood vessels and so on, you just can't do that. You've either got to have the whole thing engineered properly, or else it won't work. Now we have working here, in the back, a 100% efficient radar echo return system. It must have started at zero efficiency, and now it's up to 100%. Now let's just analyze this thing a little bit further. Let's take a bat approximately halfway up toward a completely working, efficient radar system. And let's say we now have this mouse who has acquired incipient wings and he's on his way toward a nascent, fully efficient organ. 
And let's say he is now 49.375% on the road up toward an efficiently working radar system. Now the theory says that this line is gradually getting better. So the next fellow that comes along has to have a system which is 49.376% efficient. Now let's just see what the, what the problem is here. This fellow has got to be on the way up to a 100% system of that. Now there's two amazing things which have to, this guy has to have going for him over this guy. And number one is, we'll call this fellow A and this fellow B. Don't forget B is on the way up this ladder toward 100% efficiency. B has to have two amazing, I wouldn't say mutually exclusive things going for him, but certainly different things going for him. B, B's radar incipient system, his incipient radar system, must be closer to a 100% efficient system than A. Got that point? Yes? Well, that would be special creation. If you have a line going uh, from zero efficiency, right smack at one stroke up to a fully fledged radar system, then you've got special creation. Well, what's got to go on time-wise? If you're talking about a moment of time, you're talking about special creation. If you're talking about a time scale, then you've got the picture I've got here hanging on. So, B, let's cover this point again. B's radar system, his incipient radar system, must be closer to a 100% efficient system than A's. Otherwise, you're going backwards. But that's, that's only half the story. That's bad enough. But two, B's new organ of decimal 001, that's that point right there, must have more survival value in the struggle for existence. Otherwise, he's going to get knocked off. In nature. Now, these are two very different things, my friends. You may have an organ which helps the guy survive. Remember, uh, he's got to survive as he goes along. According to Simpson, this thing is... Well, let's, Say that it's a million years, right? So over this million year period, they accomplish this amazing feat. This is the line that has to go on. Now, all during that time, 
The force which is pushing this thing ahead is natural selection. The survival of the fittest. Now I think uh, virtually all of the of the uh, scientists of that meeting in Chicago, I read those three volumes very closely, all of them said that natural selection was the thing they hung their hat on and the survival of the fittest. So this organ, this decimal 001, must have survival value in the competition for food with this mouse, which is 49.375 on the way up. Otherwise, he's going to get knocked off, and this little, this incipient organ is going to be no good to him. But, that, but that's only half. The other point is, this also got to be on the, a, a better radar system. Now, these two things are different. Survival value and radar systems, at this point in time, are quite different. Now, if you can believe that over a million years, as this thing went up to decimal 377 and 378 and 379 and 60.123 and 75.748, that all these things happen, then you have a contradiction of, of a mathematical law, which is the law of probability. As soon as you get probabilities of, of, this, of this dimension, right away you're into uh, impossibility. Now, strangely enough, I told you that this theory will accompany anything. No matter what you say, the evolutionist is insulated against DC. Uh, any other branch of mathematics says that as the probability gets into astronomical proportions, you can knock it off. Uh, Brother um, Swan was talking about that this morning in his class. But the theory of evolution, so help me, says that the longer odds against the thing happening are proof that it did happen. These fellows say, boy, we admit it, it's really funny that, that uh, all these things, uh, the, the probabilities are murder that this, that this could happen and happen over a period of a million years. That's true. But for some reason they say that the, the improbability of it happening is the fact that it didn't happen. Now, it says in the Bible that there would come a time when people would call white black and black white. I don't know whether they're crazy or I am. But I can't see how astronomical improbability guarantees certainty that a thing happened. Now this has been pointed out to the evolutionists. But because they want to believe that this happened in this fashion, then they do believe it. There's another thing that we haven't covered even. There's number three here. These are bad enough, but number three is, what is the driving force that makes this decimal one appear to part radar? This blooming mouse, this incipient mouse, is not prophetic. You know, he doesn't sit there and say, well, what I really want to do is a, is a million years from now, I want to have a perfectly developed radar system. Therefore, what, what's needed is that we got to weed out this and that and any little change that appears that's going to make for a perfect radar system is for me. And that's what I'm going to, I'm going to find a wife with one of those two and we're going to have kids and we're going to get that decimal point set. Now we're going to go on to the next one. The mouse isn't prophetic. This thing all happens by blind chance. Now, in my view, I don't know you think, in my view, uh, the faith that is required to believe in the theory of evolution is just, just unbelievable. Um, yeah. Louder. 
if these if these mice, if the semi-half-developed uh, radar system was so uh, strong as to be able to continue in existence, surely we could still have them around. Right. They should be here in the form of a massive organ somewhere, shouldn't they? Well, uh, kind of the mouse all the way up to a bat. Yeah. Or at least we should be able to find them in fossil form. We can't find them either place. Tail <laughs> to the theory of evolution. Now, don't forget number four is, and, and this is a real trick too. We've got three things now that are pretty bad, but number four is that this, this one point here of efficiency toward this radar system must have the ability to be passed on to the progeny. Now, I, I don't know of any evolutionists that I've read, and I haven't read them all, and there may be some that you've read that I haven't read, any that I have read said that the theory of the inheritance of acquired characteristics is null and void. And this, the ability to pass this, this um, incipient better thing for radar on, is the ability to pass on an inherited characteristic, acquired characteristics, which most evolutionists and, uh, and biologists say can't be done. So we have four rather damaging things to contend with in the evolution of the radar system of the bat. Now I want to give you one from plant life, which is even more fantastic than this. Because uh, in an animal, at least the Neo-Lamarckians say that the thing can think a bit and sort of, you know, um, it has a brain and it can maybe be a bit prophetic and work towards this thing in a sort of a way, not clearly understood. But this can't happen with a plant because it just can't think. So whatever theory you're going to work out about um, neo-Lamarckianism and how the thing might be able to think and sort of dope this thing out, it doesn't apply to plants as is what Collier pointed out years ago in that little book that's now been reprinted which is very good called The Vegetable in the Witness Box. But here we have uh, a rather remarkable plant. And I'm going to have to speak pretty fast here. This plant is called, and, and by the way, when you write this down, please, um, this, what I'm going to tell you now, is written up and explained rather fully in a book, little booklet called Creation or Chance, put out by Logos Publications in Australia, but they have an American address, and it is Box 1066, Pasadena, California. They're free. And um, what I'm going to tell you now, in my view, is a, a very serious flaw in the theory of evolution. So if any of you want to write this little booklet called Creation or Chance, it's the April 1966 issue of the Herald of the Kingdom, incidentally put out by the Logos Publications, but it is available in America at Box 1066, Pasadena, California. All right, now let's have a look at this, this remarkable plant. This 
is the root of the plant here. Can you all, is this going all right on that screen? This is the root of the plant. Around the root of the plant is a rosette of leaves. One, two, three, four, five, six leaves. The stem of the plant goes up here, and this is the flower of the plant up here. Now the leaves which are around the base of this plant are of an exceedingly remarkable nature. And what we've done in this picture is blow up the end of one of these leaves here. We've blown it up here, uh, here, and here. But this, this is the leaf in its open position. This thing is in the form of a trap, something like a clamshell. And it has some very, very interesting things going for it. In order to make sure I don't leave anything else, I want to just refer to my notes. The endings of these leaves are in the form of a fly trap, and that's where it gets its name. It's called an insectivorous venusus fly trap, and it grows in North Carolina. At the base of this trap is a hinged system. Now a hinge is a fairly complicated mechanism. If you'd ever, if your wife has ever told you that the door sticks and you take the hinges off and try and get the plain thing back on so it doesn't stick, you will know if you're a carpenter like I am that it's quite a trick. Never mind a hinge as complicated as this is. <clears throat> In addition to that, the, the um, halves of, of the bivalve here are colored so it looks like a flower. They are perfumed so that they are attractive to insects. In other words, to all intents and purposes, if you looked at it just casually, you might think that there were a bunch of flowers around the base of this plant, although the real flower is up here. Now, in the, when this thing is open like that, there are six very minute hairs. One, two, three, four, five, six. And when the hairs are disturbed by a landing insect, here's a little housefly here, ready to enter this fly trap because he's attracted by the perfume and the color and the nectar which this uh, contains. When he enters the fly trap, these little hairs are tickled. Now, the strange thing about the tickling of the hairs, you either have to tickle the same hair twice or two hairs in succession before the fly trap will spring shut. In other words, if a little bit of a leaf or something fell on there, it wouldn't spring shut. It's got to, the hairs have to be tickled either the same hair twice or two hairs in succession before the thing will shut. So the fly enters this Venus fly trap, and when, the, when these peculiar hairs are tickled in the proper fashion, the thing suddenly springs shut. And here is a picture of the fly trap shut. Not only so, but you see these spikes around here? These are all interlocking, something like uh, the, the uh, things on a feather. They interlock like that and press closer and closer together so that no matter how hard the fly struggles, he cannot pry the thing apart. So here is a picture of the fly trap sprung shut with the fly inside. Now, in 
the lining of the fly trap are digestive glands, which the acid of which will digest protein, which is what a fly is, mainly. And they are on the inner surface of the fly trap. So as soon as the thing springs shut, these digestive glands start to secrete the juice, and the fly is, is uh, dissolved, and, and the, and the um, resultant mixture is um, taken from, uh, the nutriment is taken from the end here and feeds the plant. There is approximately one week's continuous supply of the excretion of the glands, which is adequate time for the digestion of a fly, no matter how big it is. In other words, the interior of the fly trap becomes a virtual stomach for the digestion of the trapped fly. Now, let's ask some questions about this business. Would you say this is a complicated um, business or a very simple structure? Yeah, I think most everybody would agree that it's fairly complicated. Now, remember, we are discussing the principle of uselessness during immaturity. So this plant, at one time or other, obviously did not have a fly trap. No other um, plant has any mechanism just exactly the same as this. So again we are, are um, faced with a problem as to how on earth this thing developed gradually. The thing's no good at all unless it's hinged. It's no good at all unless some mechanism is there to make the thing spring shut. It's no good at all having it sprung shut unless the the, um, the thing can act as a stomach and digest the beast that's in there. It's no good at all if all that happens unless the, the juice can't be transported back into the main stem of the plant and be a nutriment for it. Now, the same, all the same factors that we mentioned with respect to the radar system of the bat apply here. Every single one. Now, if you can conceive of how this whole mechanism could develop gradually, then your powers of imagination are greater than mine. And don't forget that the seed of the plant is produced up here. It's got nothing to do with this at all. So when the plant has come to fruition and the seed has been developed, you plant that seed back in the ground and up comes this mechanism again, fully formed and perfectly functioning. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not too bright, but I can't conceive of how this thing could possibly have existed in a survival all during the millions of years of its development. Number one, been able to pass this amazing thing onto its progeny, number two, and function in a half fashion form of 49.375% on its way up to this amazing structure, number three. I just can't, and of course it can't be prophetic, because this thing hasn't got a brain. So that argument, of course, you can't even use in this connection. So there is a, uh, in, in my view at least, a completely impossible position for uh, the plant to be in. To function in the survival of the fittest over a million years and get itself up so it has, honestly, a perfectly functioning plant trap. I just can't believe it. And 
uh, all the arguments on heaven and earth won't convince me that this thing could have been done gradually. The only way, in my view, the, the complexity of this whole mechanism could have been done is by God in heaven creating it in the first place so that when the seed was planted, up it came in this fully developed fashion. I guess that's the, the end of our time, isn't it? I see people wandering around out there, and well, I haven't heard a bell. Now, as I told you, there are several books at the back on this subject, and many more available. The Finger of God that the testimony put out last year is very good and very cheap. Um, this little book that I mentioned before is one, and there's a book down there called Flaws in the Theory of Evolution, which is also very good. Um, we haven't even discussed half the things that are even worse than this, in my view, to explain by evolution theory. Things like instinct, the migration of birds, and so on, the, uh, the compatibility of, of uh, all different kinds of, of um, say, bees or ants in a cell, uh, how it is that some animals need some plants and some plants need some animals, and that's the only way they can function. I mean, there's so many things that I could go on for weeks on this thing, bringing up impossible things, in my view, which are explainable by the theory of evolution. But suffice it to say that um, I think we've at least given you enough now to show you that there are serious flaws in the theory. And for anybody to call it a fact uh, is, in my view, a misnomer. Thank you.